This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is dealing with changing relationships. In the first half, L. Whitney Clayton shares his address, Getting and Staying Connected. Then in the second half, Wendy L. Watson speaks on change. It's always a possibility. Kathy and I have seven children, five of whom graduated from BYU, as did two sons-in-law and two daughters-in-law. Like many of you, I do most of my reading about current events, the news and commentary about the news, online. Every morning I read from several news sources. Sometimes I watch news stories online. I found that doing so was helpful professionally as a lawyer, but it's been essential in my church service as well. This reading frequently leads me to ideas that can be used to illustrate gospel principles and sermons, usually by providing instructive examples. Some of the examples are about good and brave people doing noble or courageous things. They are stories that inspire. Other news accounts fall in the opposite category, but they also have value. This afternoon, I want to share with you something other than a news story that I saw online. It was an advertisement. As you know, in order to access some news stories online, we sometimes first have to watch short advertisements. Most of you have seen your share of such advertisements. You also know that you have to see some advertisements multiple times before they are replaced by new ones. A recent advertisement I saw a few times caught my attention. It was an ad for a smartphone, and it showed a group of 20-somethings out on the town at night. They looked happy as they moved across the screen. They were laughing and talking together in a close circle of friendship. As I recall, there was no cell phone actually in view. Instead, the narrator praised the virtues of staying connected. I inferred, as I think it was intended I would, that these young people were having a terrific time together because their phones connected them in some magical way. Had they not had their phones, their happy night just wouldn't have been the same. I'm confident that's what I was supposed to conclude. The advertisement ended with another image, a close-up of an attractive young woman looking intently at her phone with a slight sort of Mona Lisa smile and a knowing, purposeful, confident look on her face. I thought the message this advertisement conveyed was subtle and fascinating. Purchase this product and you too will be connected. You'll be young, attractive, socially accepted, up-to-date, and in charge of your life. Things will be good. You'll be happy, have friends, and have fun. I wondered after seeing the ad a few times, does all of that really come from owning the right smartphone? I thought that real connection has so much more weight and substance than what a cell phone offers, no matter how smart it is. Real interpersonal connection is so much more transcendent than the video of a carefree night on the town suggests. Nevertheless, the power of the advertisement is that it subtly nudges against eternal truths. There can be, after all, real value in being connected. All of our human interactions in one way or another are connections. Some are fleeting and less consequential, and some become the very substance of eternity and matter immensely, now and forever. Along the spectrum between these two ends are many other kinds of relationships. Let me mention a few thoughts about connections for your consideration. First, 
Nearly all of you who graduate today are intimately connected to people who, over a lifetime, helped you to qualify to attend BYU. These connections include your parents, grandparents, and family. In many cases, they also provided the financial wherewithal for you to stay here and the emotional support that helped you succeed. You owe them so much more gratitude than a few words from any of us will capture this afternoon. At the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, the Prophet Joseph Smith offered what he described as a revealed prayer. He prayed for Church leaders and their families, including those whom he called their immediate connections. That same sort of prayer is appropriate for you to offer today for your immediate connections. We hope that you will thank them, especially by the way you live. John the Beloved wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Your lifelong faithfulness and devotion to the Savior and His restored Church will be the highest demonstration of gratitude that you can offer to your parents. Second, a number of you have formed your own families while you have been at BYU, connecting profoundly and eternally with each other. Nothing else that you did while you were here, no matter what degrees or academic distinctions you achieved, is more valuable to you than this eternal connection. Your happiness and growth in this life and your opportunities for eternity hereafter are fundamentally linked to this most immediate of all connections. Your most important mortal responsibility will be to build and nurture this young relationship into a connection that is qualified by its virtues and character to be eternal. As you both are faithful, the love you have experienced thus far will increase in beauty, significance, and substance. If you will each pay the price of becoming devoted to heaven and each other as God intends, then your connection will be the flower and fruit of your lives. Third, some of you became parents during your time here at BYU. Your children are connected to you and you to them in ways parents have to experience to understand. As the years go by, your connection to your progeny will become ever more precious and meaningful. Your education and experience at BYU have expanded your capacity to offer your children an opportunity to thrive in this life. Your time here enriched you by, by providing you with a deeper storehouse from which to draw truth and wisdom as you raise your children. You will find that you will continue to be parents for your children long after they move on with marriages of their own and families. Your new connection to these children is clearly an eternal one. Fourth, you have also consciously or perhaps unconsciously become more closely connected to the Church and its members worldwide. The Church's financial and leadership investment in BYU is staggering. The expense of operating BYU far exceeds the tuition paid for your education. You literally stand on the shoulders of faithful members who pay their tithing in full confidence that, among many other things, worthy and honorable LDS students will benefit from their financial obedience. The cost of your education here was subsidized by the tithing of a few members with extensive bank accounts, but it was also aided by some both here and abroad who literally or figuratively keep their limited savings under their mattresses. Tithing is paid by those who never dreamed of being able to attend BYU and by others who dream about it but for whom, for many reasons, the dream will never be realized. Saints around the world selflessly pay tithes 
so that you, people they have never met and will never know, can attend BYU. Their continuing obedience and generosity are dependable and allow for the Church to maintain BYU and her sister organizations. You are connected to all these saints as their beneficiaries. Fifth, I believe you now have a duty to stay connected to BYU. The Alumni Association's motto is Connected for Good. Your education enables you to help BYU go forward in good ways. The effort you make to repay the blessing you have received will never compensate the Church or the Lord for the good to which you have been exposed and connected at BYU. But it won't hurt you to try to do so. Some of you may earn sufficient income to make major philanthropic gifts to the university in addition to your tithes. Please consider doing so, using wisdom and acting in accordance with your circumstances. The blessings you have been given and will be given will in turn bless many others in unforeseeable ways. Staying connected to BYU for good means staying close enough to be useful for the long run, doing all the good you can to promote the future of this great institution. Sixth, I hope as well that you will stay connected in appropriate ways with friends, classmates, and professors from BYU. The world is small, especially in the Church, and your friendships can be perpetuated and enhanced as the years go by. Those connections will circle around over the years to bless and help you in happy, righteous ways. For example, some of my present quorum associates in Church service met each other as roommates at BYU and have friendships that extend back for decades. In these regards, however, three brief reminders seem important. Just as there are connections that should be strengthened, there are others that should be relegated to history. Some of you have had dating connections during your years here that did not result in marriage, and either you or your former interest married someone else. If so, wisdom suggests that you disconnect from that association. Staying in touch with each other electronically or otherwise after eternal covenants or connections have been made is spiritually unwise and, unfortunately, all too often dangerous. By permitting or encouraging familiarity to exist when such closeness is no longer appropriate, don't do anything that exposes your own or someone else's eternal connection to a spouse to hazards in any way. In matters of such consequence, there is no room for error. A similar warning should be sounded about the perils of pornography. Though Church leaders continually fire off warning flares about the seriousness of this selfish and gullible sin, too many still fail to make the lasting behavioral change required. The transgression is serious enough by itself, and the risk of greater evil it entails is real. Any closeness to this temptation should be abruptly disconnected and effort focused on seeking help from Church leaders and through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. A few of you may have run into some who have ceased to hold fast to the iron rod, wandered off the straight and narrow path, and have become lost. They started sometimes with online tours of the territory of the faithless. This indiscretion is often accompanied by failing to earnestly study the Book of Mormon every day and by the companion problem of gradually becoming lax in keeping other commandments. This sometimes leads to listening and then hearkening to those who mock the Church, its leaders, or its history. The faithless often promote themselves as the wise, who can rescue the rest of us from our naivete. One does not need to listen to assertive apostates for long 
to see the parallels between them and the Korahors, Nehors, and Sherems of the Book of Mormon. We should disconnect immediately and completely from listening to the proselytizing efforts of those who have lost their faith and instead reconnect promptly with the Holy Spirit. The adversary sees spiritual apathy and half-hearted obedience as opportunities to encircle us with his chains and bind us, and he hopes to destroy us. We escape his chains as we voluntarily choose to bind ourselves instead to God. In what at first may seem ironic, our choosing to bind or connect with heaven frees and empowers us to become all that we possibly can in this life and the next through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. The word connect comes from the Latin root connectere, meaning to bind. As I watched that smartphone advertisement about connecting with friends, my recurring thought was that the connection, the binding that matters most, is the one we have with God. We connect with God most securely when we do so by covenant. When we are baptized, we covenant to keep the commandments, to take upon us the name of Christ, and to always remember Him. We are promised that if we do so, we will always have His Spirit to be with us. We renew and recommit ourselves to this covenant every Sunday when we partake of the sacrament. Additional covenants made in receiving the priesthood and in the temples of God bind us ever more closely to Him. These connections to Him become the guideposts for our lives. They help us measure where we are on the straight and narrow path. They lead us to the fruit of the Atonement, forgiveness, peace of conscience, and love. They help us stay worthy to enjoy the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Whatever we do that may tend to weaken our connection, our binding with heaven, should be assessed with wariness. Everything we do that tends to reinforce faith and promotes keeping our covenants should be embraced. Our connection with heaven is the most valuable blessing we have and the most important one we can secure. It strengthens every other worthy connection in our lives. You have had a wonderful opportunity at BYU to receive both a full, broad academic program and the blessing to connect to God. There is nowhere else you can find a believing student body studying such diverse subjects as here. There is nowhere else you can find so many eminently qualified professors who are faithful believers. With the exception of associated church schools, there is nowhere else you could find as rich an opportunity to learn whatever it is you studied while looking through the lens of belief and faith. All of this afforded you a rich opportunity to connect with heaven. It offered you time to deepen discipleship and refine covenant-keeping. If your time here led to such a result while gaining academic excellence, your time was well spent. If your experience here did not further establish such a connection, a closer binding between you and God, then perhaps today's hinge point in your life's journey is the time to ensure that your focus in life is where it should be. A lawyer once asked the Savior, Master, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When we love God, we become truly connected to Him. When we love our neighbor, we become truly connected to him or to her. 
As we keep the commandments of God, we show our love for God. As we serve one another, we show our love for our neighbor. The lasting value of your education at Brigham Young University is that it enhanced your capacity to do both. May you and we all make it our purpose to be worthily connected to God and to each other, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is dealing with changing relationships. We've just heard from L. Whitney Clayton. After the break, we'll return with Wendy L. Watson for Change, It's Always a Possibility. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is dealing with changing relationships. Next is Wendy L. Watson, a BYU professor of marriage and family therapy at the time of this address, titled Change, It's Always a Possibility. During the Saturday afternoon general conference, I was moved as I watched President Hinckley during one of the congregational hymns. He turned right around and looked at our BYU combined choir for the longest time. It was not just a brief glance. He stood there gazing. It seemed that he was surveying and studying each student. President Hinckley is the prophet of the Lord. He knows who you as BYU students are. He knows your goodness. He knows your greatness. It struck me that the Lord's prophet is counting on you. Teaching is a privilege anywhere, but to teach at BYU with you as students who are filled with light and the love of learning and of your fellow men, well, it just doesn't get much better than that for me as a professor. So even though I want to offer you some ideas about change today, there are many things I would hope you would never change. Let me tell you a few. Please don't change your goodness, your deep core goodness. Please don't change being a cut above any other student body in the land. I believe it. It's true. You are amazing. Not perfect, but amazing. Don't change that light in your eyes. Don't change how much you want to help each other. Even when I hear distress stories about roommates and family members, the distress flows from wanting to have connections with each other that just aren't happening. Please don't change your love of the Lord. Please don't change your courage to do so many seemingly impossible things. Don't change your desire to keep improving. And please don't change your desire for change. So let's talk about change. I love change. I love it. I'll admit it. I'm passionate about it. Actually, I'm just plain wild about change. I'm professionally committed to it and personally enamored by it. Professionally, I try to facilitate it, study it, and love to participate in it. Personally, I advocate it, seek after it, and basically, I'm in awe of it. Personally and professionally, I am a detective of change. I want to discover change when everyone else says there is none present nor possible. I guess that's as close as I come to my Sherlock Holmes name of Dr. Watson. For 25 years, I have had the privilege of working with other seekers of change. They go by the title of clients, individuals, couples, and families who want change. 
They want something to be different in their lives. I'm not sure when my love of change commenced, but I still remember the thrill that accompanied one of the first big changes in my life, the change of advancing from riding a tricycle to riding a bicycle. The brief sinking feeling that accompanied my awareness that my dad had let go of the back of my bike and was no longer running alongside and holding me up was quickly replaced by exhilaration. I was riding a two-wheeler all by myself. A few wobbles on the heavily graveled road, and I was off. I could go further, faster. My world suddenly got bigger. I loved this change, and I loved the exhilaration that accompanied this change. A change in the number of wheels on my vehicle changed my speed, changed what I could explore, changed even my view of myself. I was all grown up now, or so I thought, and I loved those changes. My progression to a bicycle was a change that involved much more than a decrease in wheels. It involved moving forward in my life and realizing that my dad believed I could move forward, even forward faster than I thought I could. I was embracing something new, something I'd never tried before. Riding a bicycle didn't feel anything like riding a tricycle. It felt more like flying. When I advanced from two-wheeling it on a bicycle to two-wheeling it on a brand new blue Honda 50, I was in ecstasy. By paying for half of this marvelous flying machine, this change in mode of transportation brought increased responsibility into my life. This change also brought increased confidence, increased vulnerability, increased possibilities. All part of the wonderful world of change. My blue Honda 50 introduced me into another world, the world of men. I met a young man with a red Suzuki. Now think of that. A red Suzuki and a blue Honda. Now this was true everlasting love. Well, at least for a summer, and then all that changed. There have been times when change seemed to push itself into my life totally uninvited. When I was nine years old, my baby brother David was born on the first day of fall classes, September 1st. After school, I walked all over town with a Polaroid picture of David clasped in my hands, knocking on doors, asking neighbors if they wanted to see my brand new baby brother. When I returned home, I learned how quickly things can change. David had died, having lived only eight and a half hours. That was a change I never anticipated. But with that change, my understanding of life and death changed. As my grandmother talked to me in my bedroom that afternoon about the reality of life after death, this new understanding of life, now situated in the reality of my baby brother's death, and the increasing reality of eternal life, slowly loosened the grip. That grief had on my nine-year-old heart, grief arising from this highly unanticipated change. There have been times when I anticipated change and change did not happen, like the times when I was so certain about a change in my last name, corresponding with a change in my marital status. I said yes to several young men, sequentially, I might add, who posed the question, "Wilt thou?" and I wilted. Unf. Unfortunately, on those occasions, I responded to those young men before I really sought the Lord's opinion, 
However, upon hearing the Lord's voice, I followed His counsel and ended those relationships. I have learned to seek the voice of the Lord a bit sooner since then. What are the changes that you have experienced in your life? Which ones are invited and anticipated? Which were anticipated yet never materialized? Which were uninvited yet marvelous? Which were uninvited and soul-wrenching? Change is always happening. Change requires much of us, and change changes us. How have you responded to the changes in your life? Think of a change that came into your life, uninvited, that you did not want and that was soul-wrenching. How did you respond to it? By turning toward the Lord, drawing closer to Him, or by turning away? I have had the privilege of observing the responses of many people to these difficult situations. Let's consider just a few. A father commits suicide. His daughter is angry at God and turns away from Him, believing that the Lord and her father have both deserted her. A husband commits adultery. Both husband and wife turn toward the Lord for comfort and answers to agonizing questions. A mother dies. Her son turns away from the restored gospel and back to old views of God and to his former religion. A woman feels a change coming into her life, and it doesn't come at least not when she thought nor as she thought, and she turns to God for the reassurance that all is still well. Your best friend marries your fiancé, and that change brings about a whole new way of turning to the Lord, a mighty change, even the mighty change. What are the changes that have influenced your life? You have heard the old adage, the only thing you can count on for sure is that things will change. Some of you may say that you can't handle one more change in your life right now. Perhaps you have experienced too much change in a very compressed period of time. Perhaps you are like the young man who returned home from his mission to find that his parents were divorcing. His father was excommunicated. His fiancée welcomed him home with the Dear John letter in hand. All the classes for his major were full. His prospective roommates were moving, and the company he was going to work for had gone bankrupt. When changes like that happen all at once, it can be very difficult to hold on, to go on, without sustaining help from the Lord and from those that the Lord raises up to assist you. Such changes can even threaten your spiritual stability and sense of peace. Others of you may say, I could use more change in my life. Let's start by adding to the few cents left in my bank account at this point in the semester. I also could use a change of scenery. I am ready to be up in the mountains, not just looking up at them. A change of activities. I am tired of studying. And maybe some of you are praying for a change of heart, not your own, but your professors, as they make, <laughs> as they make grade calculations during the next few weeks. What change would make the biggest difference in your life at this time? A change in your thinking, your behavior, your feelings? Would you want a change in a relationship or a change that would allow you to have a relationship? A change in the way you see yourself or in the way you believe others see you? A change in your abilities, your qualities, or do you most desire a change in your nature or a change of heart? Change and beliefs about change are all around us. Some people believe that change is not desirable at all or is a totally hopeless pursuit. Only a wet baby likes change, teases the bumper sticker. 
The more things change, the more they stay the same, protests a French proverb. When we find ourselves complaining about the same old thing to a friend year after year, when we make the same resolutions every New Year's Eve, when the bathroom scales obnoxiously declare that you are still 10 pounds overweight, we may wonder if there is such a thing as change or if real change is truly possible. Yet my teaching, clinical and research experiences tell me that people desire change, do indeed change, and more importantly, that change is always happening. So how does change happen? Through my research with families, I have come to believe that therapeutic change occurs as the belief that is at the heart of the matter is identified, challenged, or solidified. Ancient Hebrew tradition held that the heart could think. It is the heart-generated and heartfelt thoughts, those affectively saturated cognitions that influence thoughts, feelings, and actions, those beliefs of the heart, even those beliefs in one's deepest heart of hearts that I am interested in distinguishing, challenging, and solidifying. These are the beliefs that matter, the beliefs of the heart that are at the heart of the matter. These are the beliefs that provide the greatest leverage for change. These are core beliefs and can either be constraining or facilitating of change. Facilitating beliefs increase options to finding solutions to problems. Constraining beliefs decrease solution options. Let me share with you some constraining beliefs that inhibited change. One couple, healing from years of building walls to protect their hearts that got hurt in the midst of an affair, had walled each other out. They wondered why they felt so lonely and unfulfilled in their marriage. The constraining belief that, uh, that held each of them captive and prevented them from reaching out to each other at the very time they needed each other the most was, I am not lovable and not worthy of love. A man ruled by anger that oppressed his wife, his children, and himself held to the belief, I am the holder of all light and truth. This constraining belief invited frustration, anger, and unrighteous dominion into his relationships. A young man seeking assistance with his almost lifelong battle with pornography believed, I am weak. A couple struggled to find new ways of relating with each other after years of silence and suffering. Each felt misunderstood and underappreciated. They each believed, My spouse doesn't care about my feelings and what life in our marriage has been like for me. The widow of a man who won the million-dollar lottery one year and committed suicide the next New Year's Eve believed, I am to blame for my husband's death. Each of these constraining beliefs prevented solutions from being found and in most cases invited the belief that a solution was impossible. What beliefs about yourself, others, or life currently constrain you from taking the very next step toward making the changes you so desire in your life? One belief that consistently constrains change is the belief that there is only one correct view and I have it. Being passionate about your ideas is one thing, perhaps even a great thing. Offering your ideas to another and understanding that they may hold different ideas than you do can be the essence of a congenial discussion, even merging into a warm disputation. However, requiring that someone must change their ideas to comply with yours is more than demanding, 
It is demonic. President Howard W. Hunter, in October Conference 1989, pointed out the Lord's approach to influencing others. Quote, God's chief way of acting is by persuasion and patience and long-suffering, not by coercion or stark confrontation. He acts by gentle solicitation and by sweet enticement. He always acts with unfailing respect for the freedom and independence that we possess. End quote. One of our hymns sets these same truths to music. He'll call, persuade, direct aright and bless with wisdom, love, and light. In nameless ways be good and kind, but never force the human mind. You cannot make someone change their mind, but you can invite and entice, offer and persuade, and then respect what they choose to do. Through clinical research, I have found that change is most likely to occur when we are invited to a reflection. Through the process of reflection, we can become aware of ourselves and others in a whole new way. When I read Alma, I experience him as a man who is passionate about change and a man expert in the art of inviting others to reflect—reflections that increase the likelihood that people will change. How does Alma invite these change-inducing reflections? One way is through his use of questions. In Alma chapter 5 alone, over 40 of his questions are offered. Questions like, Have ye received his image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? And if ye have experienced a change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, Can ye feel so now? Through the process of persistent questioning, he invites us to reflect over and over again on our status with the Lord, on our spiritual growth and development, on things that need to change or have changed, and before we know it, our desire for more change increases. The next time you want an incredible experience with reflection, to see just what it feels like to be invited and enticed to change, to have your stance of, I'm just fine or I can't change, persistently chiseled away at, read Alma chapter 5 maybe several times. Notice how your thoughts about yourself and your possibilities for change are altered through Alma's relentless questioning. I love Alma. I love his devotion to change, and I love his use of questions which invite reflection. Perhaps you have invited yourself to a reflection lately through the multitude of questions that are on your mind these days. What are the questions that you are asking yourself? I am impressed that the questions my clients often ask themselves are a variation on, Am I worthy? Have I been forgiven of my sins? Am I clean before the Lord? They know that no other change can compensate for failure in this area. What reflection would allow you to see yourself and perhaps someone else in a different way, a way that would add to your desire for change? One husband was invited to reflection and experienced a major wake-up call when he listened to a portion of an audio taping of my therapy session with his wife. She had offered the tape to him because in the session she was able to articulate some of her core beliefs—the belief that he did not see her as equal to him, the belief that nothing she had contributed to their marriage had made a difference to him. He telephoned me in deep grief 
a deep grief born of a deeper understanding of his wife's pain. I never knew, he said. I never knew I caused her this much pain. His voice is a voice of authority in her life. His words can heal her pain or induce more pain. Who are the voices of authority in your life? Which voices really matter to you? Which voices constrain change in your life? Which voices support and sustain the changes you so desire? Are the present voices of authority in your life voices that help you be who you really are? Voices that help you step right up and speak right into the microphone about what's really in your heart? Voices attached to ears that really want to hear your voice, your ideas, and encourage you to listen to the voice of the Lord in your life? Or are they chiding voices, mocking voices, strident voices, voices that cleverly call obedience a far too simple-minded approach to life, voices that are so sophisticated in their disparagement of others that you start to believe you are missing something in your own assessments? Voices that move you away from who you really are? Voices that silence your inner voice, making your voice a stilled, small voice? And what if you are the voice of authority in someone else's life? It matters to that person what you think about them and what you say to them. Are you the keeper of some words that would make all the difference in someone else's life? Are you willing to speak the words of healing, comfort, and cheer? Have you already got clues about what someone is longing to hear from you? What would need to be different for you to offer those words honestly from your heart? As the voice of authority in someone else's life, have you unwittingly been silencing their voice through your sermonettes, through your over-explanations and your defenses of your actions, through inviting them to defend themselves by asking, Why did you do that? And yet never accepting their explanations or apologies. If you are the voice of authority in someone's life, you are also the ears of authority. You need to listen. Listen and ask. Tell me about the pain you experienced because of what I did or someone else did. Tell me. Tell me more. Ask and listen. Tell me about the joy you are experiencing these days because of the decision you made. Tell me. Tell me more. There is an extra level of healing that occurs when ears of authority are able to hear the exquisiteness of a loved one's pain and joy. Change is accelerated. As helpful as human voices of authority are, none can or should replace the ultimate voice of authority, the Word Himself, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you doing to hear His voice in your life? What are you doing to establish His voice as the voice of authority for you? His voice will strengthen yours and provide direction and courage, especially for those times when you need to speak the unspeakable. And for some of us, the unspeakable that we have needed to say to others is, I love you. I really need you in my life. I am so sorry. As you learn to hear the voice of the Lord in your life, you will be increasingly drawn to hear who you really are. A story is told of a caterpillar named Yellow who was trying to find out what she should be doing with her life. In her wandering, she discovers another caterpillar seemingly caught in some gauzy, hairy filament. Concerned, she asks if she can help. He explains that this is all part of the process of becoming a butterfly. 
When she hears the word butterfly, her whole insides leap. But what is a butterfly? The cocooned caterpillar explains, It's what you are meant to become. Yellow is intrigued but a bit defiant. How can I believe there's a butterfly inside you or me when all I see is a fuzzy worm? On further reflection, she pensively asks, How does one become a butterfly? And the answer? You must want to fly so much that you are willing to give up being a caterpillar. I love that. How does one become a butterfly? You must want to fly so much that you are willing to give up being a caterpillar. So what are you willing to give up being so that you can fly? Your spirit wants to fly. Your spirit remembers your pre-mortal assignments and aspirations. What are you willing to give up believing so that you can be all you really are, all that you committed you would be? Perhaps the words of Lorenzo Snow will help. He said, quote, Jesus was a god before he came into the world, and yet his knowledge was taken from him. He did not know his former greatness, neither do we know what greatness we had attained before we came here. But he had to pass through an ordeal, as we have to, without knowing or realizing at the time the greatness and importance of his mission and works. End quote. Like Yellow, the caterpillar, whose insides leapt at the very sound of the word butterfly, what marvelous words, recurring phrases, lofty thoughts, grand concepts, and memorable people and unforgettable places are making your whole insides leap these days. Could these internal leapings be premortal stirrings, brief glimpses of your premortal life? What comes to your heart and your mind? What happens to your cells and your soul when you ask yourself, If I were to remember that I was valiant before I came here, that I have to pass through an ordeal here on earth without remembering what I was like premortally, and without knowing or realizing the greatness and importance of my mission and works now, what would I give up being, doing, feeling, believing in order to be all that I really am? Does that seem too grandiose a belief, or do you feel the truth embedded in those words? What are you willing to give up so that you can arise and shine forth as the valiant daughter or son of God that you really are? Is it time to give up your caterpillar-like lifestyle? Is it time to give up living beneath yourself? Time to give up the thoughts, feelings, or behaviors that keep you groveling on the ground when you could be flying, soaring even? Is it time to lift your sights and cocoon yourself away from the old caterpillar way of life so that your real self can emerge? What are you willing to give up being so that you can fly? Are you willing to give up your sins, even your favorite ones, to really know yourself and, most importantly, to really know the Lord, to really come close to Him, to rend the veil of unbelief, to access the healing power of the Atonement that is there for you, the power that can be applied to your disappointments, your temptations, your sorrows, and your suffering? And what would help you? What would provide cocooning for you? Do you remember Alma and his life-changing cocooning process? His cocooning included harrowing up reflections about his many sins 
and comforting memories about his father's tutoring about the Atonement. From the depths of his soul Alma cried out to the Lord, O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness, and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. Many of us here today appreciate the anguish that prompted Alma's pleading. And happily, many of us are no longer strangers to the joy Alma experienced and expressed. And oh, what joy and what marvelous light I did behold! Yea, my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. Do you know that joy? Does it help you remember who you really are? You are a god or goddess in embryo. In whose presence do you really get to be your true self? Who is your closest companion? With whom do you spend the most time? And does your time with your closest companion enhance or diminish your ability to have the Holy Ghost as your constant companion? Whose views are influencing you the most these days? Through repeated interactions, whose image are you receiving in your countenance? Structural coupling is a biological term that describes a process through which changes in living systems occur. Structural coupling involves two entities having interactions with each other over a period of time. Each interaction between the two triggers changes. Through this history of interactions, the two distinct entities become less different from each other. They become more alike. There is an increasingly better fit over time. Like feet and shoes, like two stones rubbed together, they change in concert with each other. When you interact with someone or something repeatedly over time, it changes you. Even your interactions with an idea, with an image, changes you. That is why your environment is so important. That is why what you watch on TV or read or see in magazines is so critical. So watch what you watch. Be careful with whom or what you are interacting. Those recurrent interactions change your cells, they change your soul, they change your countenance. Do congruent changes arising from recurrent interactions explain why friends begin dressing alike and talking alike? Could structural coupling explain why couples over time often look alike? Do we grow to look and act like those we love, those we interact a lot with? Is structural coupling the way we become more and more like those we admire and honor? Could we, in fact, through our repeated interactions with someone, not only start looking like them but start seeing like them? Our ever-changing biopsychosocial spiritual structures influence what we see what is real for us. As Robert Millett, Dean of Religious Instruction, said, We do not see things as they really are. We see things as we really are. Our interactions with others trigger changes in our biological structures, our psychosocial structures, and our spiritual structures. Eyes change, hearts change, cells change, and souls change through structural coupling. So, who would you most want to be like? Who would you most want to see like? Who would you most like to think like? Whose image would you like engraven upon your countenance?
A sociological principle states, increased interaction leads to increased sentiment. The more we interact with someone, the more feelings we have for them. The biological principle of structural coupling indicates that increased interaction leads to increasingly becoming like the person or thing that we have repeated interactions with. The Savior entreats us to come unto Him. He wants us to come close to Him. He wants us to have increasingly repeated interactions with Him and to really get to know Him. According to the sociological principle, our increased interactions with the Lord would lead to increased feelings for Him, which would lead us to want more interactions. And according to the biological principle of structural coupling, our interactions with the Savior would lead to increasingly becoming like Him. And because He never changes, the changes that would occur through our interaction with the Savior would all be in us. As we increase our interactions with the Savior, as we really come unto Him, we can become like Him. But what does it really mean to come unto Him? How can we do that? My interaction with a little three-year-old girl several years ago was a great model to me about the relentless, undaunted effort that can be put forth when we really want to be close to someone, really want to get to know them. My experience with this little three-year-old gave me some new insights into coming unto Christ. I was attending sacrament meeting in Raymond, Alberta, Canada, in the ward in which I grew up. It was summertime just a few years ago. As soon as I sat down in the row behind this little three-year-old girl and her family, she had her eye on me. I think it was my earrings that initially caught her eye. I asked her what her name was. It was the same as mine, Wendy. When I told her that was my name, too, she was thrilled. So was I. The Savior wants us to take His name upon us, to have His name. There was no hymnal near me, so I asked her older sister to hand me one from the row in front of their family. Little three-year-old Wendy heard my request, scurried to the end of her row, passing the knees of her four siblings and parents up to the next, next row where she secured the book and brought it back with joy to me. Now, I'm not saying that Wendy's efforts to retrieve that hymnal compared with what Nephi went through to secure the plates, but perhaps her willingness to go and do did. When we hear what the Lord needs us to do, do we respond willingly and quickly? Is that one way to come unto Him, to do what He wants us to do and do it quickly? Little Wendy had heard my request and completed this loving act. Wendy's desire to be close to me was evident when, as my dad and I sang the opening hymn, she leaned over the back of the bench and put her face right on the music and sang up into our faces with her big brown eyes, which were filled with light and love. As the sacrament meeting continued, Wendy found every way she could to connect with me, entreating me to talk to her, and I would comply by softly whispering into her ear. She studied every aspect of my face and hands as much as she could from her position of leaning over the back of her bench. Finally, she could bear it no longer. She shimmied under the bench and up and onto my lap where she happily, peacefully, joyfully stayed for the rest of the meeting. Do we feel that same restlessness and urgency to come even closer to the Savior? I might add that little Wendy actually made several people happy with that move. 
her parents, who were happy they didn't have to tell her to turn around anymore, and the surrounding people in the congregation who didn't have to listen to her parents telling her to turn around anymore. And I was delighted to have her right there on my lap. From Wendy's new vantage point of being up close and personal with me, she was curious about the other people in my family. Pointing to my father, she said, What's his name? I said, His name is Daddy. And with a mix of joy, amazement, and awe, she said, I've got a boy named Daddy, too. (laughs) When we are close to the Savior, when we come unto Him, we come to understand that not only does He have a heavenly Father, too, we come to know that His Father is our Father. And we know there was a time in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Savior, out of the depths and breadth of His suffering for us, called out to our Heavenly Father with the most familiar name of Daddy when He cried, Abba. With little Wendy on my lap, I whispered into her ear, telling her what a wonderful little girl she was, how much her father and mother love her, and what she could do to show how much she loved them. She was totally enraptured with hearing these things, totally silent and very reflective. I believe that in moments of reflection, and particularly as we listen to the still, small voice, we will hear that we are wonderful and that we are loved. We will know how to show our love to the Lord, how to come even closer to Him, how to have more interactions with Him. And we will increase in our ability to see more like Him, to love more like Him, to be more like Him. The Savior is the ultimate and only true and living change agent. He is the source of all change. He changed water into wine, bringing the very best liquid refreshment to the celebration. And as you turn to Him, He will bring the very best out of you. He will indeed rescue all that is finest down deep inside of you. And what a celebration that will be. Ask Him. Asking for the Savior's help is another way to come closer unto Him. The Savior changed eyes, and He can give you the eyes to see what you need to see in order to change. He will open the eyes of your understanding. Just ask Him. The Savior changed ears, and He can help you hear His voice, and that will add strength to your own voice. Ask Him. He changed limbs that were weak, and He can change your mobility and direction to help you move to the very next level of your life and help you in your efforts to shore up the feeble knees that are around you. Ask Him. He changed a few fishes and a couple of loaves of bread into enough to feed 5,000 people, and He will take your widow's might of time, energy, and ability and magnify them, multiply them, so that there is enough and to spare. Ask Him. The Savior changed names. He turned Saul into Paul, and He can help you become His son or daughter and thus take upon His name in a whole new way. Although the Lord Jesus Christ never changes, He is the quintessential change agent, the only true change agent. Don't you love that seeming irony? The only true change agent never changes. There is only one true and living change agent, and He changes not. 
and he loves you. And he loves your desire and your efforts to change. His desire is for you to change. To have a change of heart, a change of nature, and to, over time, completely cast off the natural man. He did all that he did so that you could change. He is your Savior and my Savior. We need to actively, persistently plead for the power of His infinite and atoning sacrifice to be applied to our lives. And as we do, His ultimate healing will bring to each of our lives the ultimate change. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was dealing with changing relationships with thoughts from L. Whitney Clayton and Wendy L. Watson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.